Welcome to the wicket. Yes, hello and welcome to another episode of The Wicked, where as ever, we're looking at cricket in the Gulf, Asia and worldwide. As usual, I'm here. It's Brian Murgatroyd speaking to you and I'm joined by John Pike, the Arab News columnist and Arab News cricket reporter, Sebash Hamagain. Hello, gents. How are you? All good. Morning, Brian and John. Well, we've got plenty to talk about. Uh, probably our most packed podcast ever, I reckon. We look at the first Bangladesh-New Zealand men's test match, which, which was a superb win for the hosts in Silet. We reflect on a historic T20I series win for Pakistan's women in New Zealand and also a terrific win for Bangladesh's women in South Africa. We wrap up the Women's Big Bash League in Australia, which has just completed its ninth edition. We look ahead to the Women's Premier League, Pakistan Super League and Indian Premier League auctions and also to the start of a busy period of women's cricket in India with England and then Australia touring. There's a final word on the India-Australia men's T20I series that finished following our previous episode. And we look ahead to India's tour of South Africa. We speak about controversy in both Pakistan and Australia, with uh, both of them involving left-handed opening batters. England's brave new white ball world, after its men's Cricket World Cup failures, has started with a whimper rather than a bang after a shattering loss to the West Indies in Antigua. We talk about that. We speak in praise of Uganda after their qualification for the T20 World Cup in the Caribbean and the USA. And Subash wraps up Nepal's domestic T20 tournament. And we look ahead to the Asian Cricket Council's Under-19 Asia Cup that starts soon in Dubai. So masses for us to get our teeth into. And let's start with Bangladesh against New Zealand. As we record the podcast, the second test is getting underway in Mirpur, and we'll chat about that match in our next episode. But in the meantime, let's review the first test in Silet, and what a win it was for Bangladesh by 150 runs, their first win over the Black Caps at home, having won a test match in Mount Monganui last year. There were 10 wickets for spinner Tajul Islam and 100 for Kane Williamson, but the key contribution was surely that of of Najmal Hossein Shanto on his captaincy debut for Bangladesh, making 105 in four hours in the second innings after the first innings of the two sides had finished with just a seven-run difference. New Zealand was set 332 to win and never got close, despite Daryl Mitchell's 58, and the margin of defeat was only lessened by late contributions from Ish Sodi and Tim Southey. Subash, how would you rate this win in Bangladesh Test history? I think it was a good win uh, at home. They beat Ireland and Afghanistan with ease, but uh, this was a new test for them. And they just continued the form they left in New Zealand. I think uh, Captain Kane was the difference in the first innings. His 100 uh, surely decreased the uh, difference, but uh, Taizul Islam did the job in second innings. Uh, New Zealand never really looked close after that uh, poor end of the show in day four. What about that contribution of not only Tigel but also the captain Shanto? I think Shanto deserves huge credit for the way he batted in their second innings, especially after that run out. Uh, they were 
Mominol and him were looking good, putting up a huge target, but uh, Musi partnered well and they posted a good total on the board. Uh, it was enough for bowlers to defend. Uh, Santu at 25 looks to be leading Bangladesh cricket from here on as well. His leadership skills were excellent. He was backed up well by Musfiq as well. And Taizul, I think uh, he balled brilliantly. He's been the main man in bowling attack uh, recently with nearly 50 test matches. He's nearing 200 wickets milestone as well. And uh, he, he was the difference uh, as he got uh, Kane in both the innings and Daryl Mitchell's wicket was uh, really important uh, to reduce uh, New Zealand in that total. John, did New Zealand get their selection wrong? There was no Ratch in Ravindra and they played only two seamers, Captain Tim Southey and uh, Kyle Jameson, while Bangladesh played only one seamer. That was Shorafel Islam. I wonder, is having Tim Southey as captain unbalancing their side in spin-friendly conditions, it means he has to play. Yeah, I think it's a bit harsh. I mean, losing the toss didn't help. As we know, batting last on type of wicket you're going to get in Bangladesh tends to be more difficult, more turn and variable bounce. Um, Bangladesh bowled very well, of course, with a four-strong spin attack, and they applied the level of pressure, consistent pressure, that proved too much for New Zealand to cope with. New Zealand didn't put any proper partnerships together or, or put enough pressure themselves on with the ball. Um, if you play for spinners for New Zealand, who do you leave out? Unfortunately, it's uh, it's been um, Ravindra in, in this case. If he plays and in, he provides another spin option, although you know his bowling's probably not yet of um, international quality. And I think one of uh, Nichols or, or Latham has to go. But I think the toss is, is pretty important. Well, uh, that's one test done and dusted there. And that, of course, bear in mind, is in the World Test Championships of points towards qualification for that final on the line. And we'll have uh, an update for you on what happened in the second test in our next podcast. We move on now to New Zealand against Pakistan, the women's series. And here's a result I'm not sure any of us saw coming. Pakistan fresh off series defeats in 2020 internationals and one-day internationals against Bangladesh away from home last month have gone to New Zealand's South Island and have reeled off successive wins against the hosts to claim their first ever series win in 2020 internationals outside of Asia or Ireland. In the first match... They chased New Zealand's 127 for six with 10 balls and seven wickets to spare. And in game two, they defended 137, winning by 10 runs. Sebash, the key to the side's success seems to be Fatima Sana. She's a seam bowler who missed the tour of Bangladesh through injury, but she's taken three for 18 in game one, three for 22 in game two, and those contributions have been decisive. Yeah, I think Sana certainly was a big miss in Pakistan squad. Not just her performance, but her experience would have been handy too. Uh, in the second game, she reduced New Zealand to 29 for four with two bold in three balls. And similar was the case with the first breakthrough in the first match. Uh, I think in Bangladesh, they could have used a batting too with the type of uh, batting that Pakistan performed. They need her to perform if they are they want to improve their uh, status in the ODI table coming forward. One special point to note, by the way, is that the second match of the T20I series was Susie Bates' 300th international for New Zealand. John, what an achievement. But she's now part of a side that, in contrast to much of her career, 
seems to have slipped back into the pack well behind Australia, India and England. Is that fair comment? Yes, it is. She's had a, a really exceptional career and it seems she wants to continue. I think she even admitted age 36 to thoughts of uh, the 2028 Olympics. Quite remarkably, she represented New Zealand in, in basketball at the 2008 Olympics in Beijing. And she said that she's going to assess how she feels after the 2024 Women's World Cup in Bangladesh. It's, what, 2006, 2007, since she made a debut. She was captain for six years until September 2018. There were tensions with the then coach, mainly over selection, and I think mainly over how to um, incorporate younger talent, which is quite ironic, given that she's still there, and that the um, New Zealand team has, as you say, slipped uh, behind uh, certainly Australia, India and England and maybe even uh, South Africa. She is a legend of the New Zealand game and broken most of the records, but um, seems like she's not done yet. Well, there's one more match to go in the T20i series before a switch to the ODI format with uh, another three-match series and the need for both teams there to gather points in the Women's Championship that ODI series is vital for both teams as only six of the 10 teams in the Women's Championship get automatic qualification for the 2024 ICC Women's World Cup in India, with those below the line facing the prospect of having to go through a qualifier. Pakistan, they're currently fifth. New Zealand is sixth. But New Zealand in ODIs have played uh, three fewer matches than Pakistan. In fact, all but one side below Pakistan have matches in hand on them. So especially after they lost that series to Bangladesh uh, last month, nothing less than a series win will surely be enough for the touring side to keep alive their hopes of an automatic berth in that World Cup. Well, they're going about things the right way in the T20I series anyway. John, I just wonder, does Pakistan's T20i form count for anything going into the ODI series, or is it simply parked by both teams? After all, with due respect to the T20i series, the ODIs are the main event of this tour, given that context. Yes, uh, they are the main event. New Zealand last played, I think, in South Africa at the end of September and lost. Before that, they lost to Sri Lanka, who aren't the strongest. Pakistan lost to Bangladesh, as we've previously discussed in November. Uh, so not a lot to go on. I think the last time they played each other was March 2022. Uh, you would think that Pakistan's confidence has been boosted by the, the two victories so far. We don't know whether that will be continued with the, the third match. I think that Pakistan have got reason to be quite happy with, uh, with the progress they've made. And um, as we talked last week, was it a cunning plan on the part of uh, New Zealand cricket to have the matches in South Island? Well, it, it seems, if so, it seems to have rebounded. Let's talk now about uh, Bangladesh and South Africa, a women's series there. And Bangladesh have secured a terrific win against their hosts in Benoni in the first of three 2020 internationals. That was uh, on Sunday, December the 3rd. They won by 13 runs against a South Africa side missing Marazan Cap and Laura Vorvat. But uh, still, it was an impressive win against a side that was, uh, if you remember, runner-up in the most recent edition of the Women's T20 World Cup. Marshida Katan, who we mentioned in this podcast previously during Bangladesh's series against Pakistan, she was a star turn again with the bat. She made an unbeaten 62 from 59 balls as opener. But then 16-year-old leg spinner Shauna Akhtar took 5 for 28 
as South Africa collapsed from 69 for no wicket to 136 for eight. Sebash, it's yet another sign, I guess, of, of terrific progress by Bangladesh's women's team, isn't it? I think Bangladesh winning on South African soil is a huge boost. Uh, Marshida once again continuing where she left off against Pakistan, uh, consecutive half centuries, this time carrying the bat, which is not often seen in women's cricket and the innings overrun a ball. Uh, Sorna, on the other hand, was rewarded with some disciplined bowling from Bangladesh opening bowlers. Uh, South Africa needed runs towards the end and she got rewards taking the wicket. I think uh, at 16, she got a 5-4. This will mean huge for Bangladesh cricket as well. Let's talk now about the Women's Big Bash League in Australia. It wrapped up after our previous episode with the Adelaide Strikers winning a thrilling final against the Brisbane Heat by just three runs to claim back-to-back titles. The heroine for the Strikers was leg spinner Amanda Jade Wellington, the player of the match with three for 16, and that included defending 10 in the final over. And it was the bowlers, really, who led the way to the title for the Strikers, as they had not only Wellington, who took 23 wickets in the tournament, the third best return, but also Australia's seamer Megan Shute, Zimbabwe leg spinner Inishu Mushangwe and captain Talia McGrath, all making significant contributions with the ball. Grace Harris of the Heat was one of the standout players of the tournament, topping 500 runs. And you may well have seen uh, on social media uh, during the tournament, her hitting a six with a broken bat, which was quite a, a remarkable thing. If you haven't seen that, please uh, have a hunt for it. It's well worth uh, watching. Uh, Harris was one of uh, only three players to top 500 runs, along with Beth Mooney of the Perth Scorchers and Chamari Atapatu of Sydney Thunder. But the strikers' success was fair enough, really, you would say, given they were the outstanding side of the league stages of the tournament, topping the pool with 11 wins in 14 matches. John, that's nine editions of the tournament now, and it has to be the preeminent women's domestic tournament. But the question is, I guess, will will it stay that way? The Indian Women's Premier League, which has had one edition uh, earlier this year, is all set to stage its draft ahead of season two, that draft taking place on December the 9th in Mumbai. Can the Women's Big Bash League continue at the top of the tree or will the uh, the Women's Premier League in India take the mantle of top women's tournament? It could take a few years. They'll throw money at it. Obviously, they are already doing. My worry is it's going to be yet another Indian competition for Indians with a few add-ons. It doesn't really develop young talent unless, unless they're Indian. You said that the, the um, Women's Big Bash in Australia is the preeminent. It probably is just. I don't think it's too far ahead of the, um, the English tournaments, although they're hindered by the fact that they've they've got a T20 tournament and, and of course, the 100. So it's hamstrung by that confusion. Sebash, what are your main takeaways from the uh, Women's Big Bash League? I think Tamari Atapatu has to be one main takeaway. She came in as an injury replacement and ended up being player of the tournament. Uh, she was amongst the run as well, won matches with her bowling and Samari was vocal on social media after that initial stop but what a story I think uh, she has put herself on the forefront as well for other tournaments and Chloe Unsworth I think she's another exciting young talent at just 18 she didn't get the numbers but uh, I think Australia will look out for her talent in coming years Yes, Jamari Atapatu off the back of that performance for Sydney Thunder has uh, secured a gig in uh, New Zealand so uh, things going from good to better 
from her perspective. John, coming back to India, as we were talking about uh, just a short while ago, what a time for women's cricket it is there, as well as the, the Women's Premier League draft. There's a tour by England with three 2020 internationals, the first of which takes place uh, on the day we're recording this podcast, Wednesday, December the 6th. There's also a test match. And then Australia arrives to play a test match plus three one-day internationals. Uh, and all that after England's second team have been touring there too. Women's cricket very much on the up in India. Yes, it's a very busy time. They're a great challenge for the top three teams as they stand at the present. I think there's still a, a freshness to the women's game and a lot of fascinating cricket to enfold um, between those sides. Sebash, that women's Premier League draft is 165 players in the auction for just 30 slots and only nine of those are open to overseas players with so few places and so many players. Could we see some substantial fees paid? Out of 30 spots in the overseas quota, I think 21 were retained by the teams. So this means they have sorted out their core and will eye on some specific reinforcement. There are chances that teams may go for the same player, uh, which will have some competition. But I feel they'll have a look at Kim Garth and Annabelle Sutherland. Uh, Garth didn't have an impact in WPL, but uh, she's got the experience and will be pick up the teams uh, with her pace bowling. Yes, uh, Annabelle Sutherland uh, was one of the impressive bowlers in the uh, Women's Big Bash League, so uh, I'm sure she'll be very much on the agenda, and Kim Garth too. John, there are 15 players in the draft from associate countries. Tara Norris of the USA made an impact in the previous edition with seven wickets in five matches, uh, a seam bowler. Are you expecting her to be picked up again, or are there any other associate players you'd like to see secure berths in one of the five franchises? With only what, nine spaces for overseas and 46 registered from full members, it's a bit difficult to see how those who are registered from associates are, are going to get a look in. And of course, it's not mandatory for franchises to have to pick an associate member. Norris was released. On a personal note, uh, I'd like to see someone from Thailand, probably um, Nathakan Chantam, and someone from the UAE to be um, selected in order to recognise the strides made by both countries in the women's game. The, the problem is there are a lot of um, Indian youngsters with enormous potential, and you would think the franchises are probably going to look to secure uh, not only their immediate future, but also lay a foundation for years to come. Yes, uh, of women's tournaments around the world, you can think of tournaments such as Fair Break that give opportunities to those players outside the so-called uh, big countries, and of course, in the UAE, in the men's game, there's the ILT20, where it's mandatory to have associate players and UAE players. But uh, it's not always the case, as you pointed out there, John. And uh, yes, that's uh, more's the pity, really, from uh, an associate perspective, that those players don't get those opportunities. Anyway, we'll keep across all the women's cricket action in India that's due over the next month, starting in the next episode of the podcast. So please stay with us. Well, it's definitely auction time, you can be sure of that. In addition to the upcoming Women's Premier League auction, there's also the Pakistan Super League auction set for December the 13th. 
And six days later, there's the Indian Premier League auction, the IPL. That IPL auction is taking place in Dubai, and we'll see 10 franchises look to fill 77 slots. This context to all these T20 tournaments, of course, as everything is leading towards the ICC Men's T20 World Cup in the Caribbean and the USA next year. So, Bash, presumably that context is why we're seeing seven of Australia's 50-over Cricket World Cup winners Pat Cummins, Travis Head, Mitchell Stark, Josh Hazelwood, Steve Smith, Josh Inglis and Sean Abbott all putting their names forward. I think IPL is an excellent opportunity for players to get into the T20 group. Uh, quality cricket uh, will help them shape up for the World Cup as well. And I think uh, some franchises have already have these players in their plan, especially KKR. Uh, I think they'll go all out for Cummins yet again as they have cleared out their pace attack and looking to build a new one. And I won't be surprised if they target two Aussie spirits at the same time, such as the quality uh, with the ball and with the bat as well. Uh, Smith, uh, I think it'll be tough for him with his recent performance, but any team looking to strengthen their leadership side will look at him. And Travis said, I think after the World Cup, uh, he will be the hot problem. Of this auction. And John has found a member of the Ratchin Ravindra fan club. I'm assuming you would expect him to be picked up by a franchise given he had such a superb Cricket World Cup, 578 runs at a strike rate of better than a runner ball. And his base price is just $60,000. He looks a bit of a bargain there, doesn't he? Yes, uh, I, I would be. I worry that he's being thrust into the spotlight at a, an alarming rate. I saw how the, the crowds in India responded to him almost as, as one of their own. He's intelligent, um, New Zealand cricket are astute, but I just worry is this all a bit too fast and too early. As a member, founding member of the fan club, you say, I wouldn't be unhappy if he, he misses out, but I'm sure somebody will, will want him even just for his uh, fan appeal. I think there's some real dangers for his development which need to be managed properly. Well, we'll keep across all the auctions and uh, analyse their results for you here on upcoming episodes of The Wicket. Since our previous podcast, the five-match series between uh, India and Australia men, the T20i series has concluded. India won that series 4-1, but four of the five matches could have gone either way with only one match. That was game two, a comfortable win for either side with India winning that. Uh, Subhash, given both sides played weakened sides off the back of the ICC Cricket World Cup, I guess the result shows that above all else, India's bench strength is slightly better than Australia's. Uh, without a doubt, uh, India's bench is too strong for Australia's second string side, but uh, we saw some close finish there. Australia fought hard and can take a lot of positives away uh, since they squad consistently throughout the series. Uh, India, on the other hand, I think uh, they'll have big selection calls in, especially in the batting department going forward. Uh, one thing is assured that uh, Rinku Singh will be the finisher that India has been searching for long. And on bowling front, I think there's a lot of work to be done. John, do you see any of the Australia squad on duty at the back end of the series in India challenging for places in the squad for the T20 World Cup next year? I think the, the transition has started. I think McDermott may challenge, possibly short. I think the Indians have got batting potential and Australia has got bowling potential. Some some interesting um, uh, futures uh, coming up. Obviously, Cummings and Stark and Hazelwood are beginning to come to the end, but it's clear, it's evident, I think, that they're going to give it one last gasp and they're sort of bringing the others on and quite slowly. But it, it's, uh, it's going to happen. 
Well, India never seemed to be too long without a match. And sure enough, they're off on tour to South Africa for a multi-format tour with three 2020 internationals, three one-day internationals and two test matches. The white ball action comes first. And interestingly, Temba Bavuma and Kagiso Rabada have been rested from those matches so they can get ready for the tests to follow. I say interesting, as South Africa have already said they'll be sending a below-strength test squad to New Zealand next year as it coincides with the SA20 tournament. Subash, what about India's squads? A decade ago, I don't think many would have thought that the change in format would go this way. India have named three squads with three different captains and the core of the squad in all formats is different as well. They brought in new players. I'm excited to see Sai Sudarshan if he gets a game. And in tests, I think uh, both Azim Karani and Chetisur Pujara getting dropped at the same time was a bold call. We may see new look middle order in tests going forward. They're uh, looking forward to the next cycle. And India with their domestic structure getting really strong and they're making most out of it. Sad that their wait for the Elijah Trophy never seems to end but uh, I think that's a bold call looking forward to the young guys. Well the action gets underway with the first 2020 international on December the 10th and we'll keep uh, an eye on the tour for you as it progresses here at the wicket. Well it wouldn't be an episode of the wicket without us having some controversy in Pakistan to speak about. And this week, it's the very rapid about turn that's followed Salman Butt's appointment as a consultant to the chief selector Wahab Riaz. Now, Salman was the Pakistan captain at the centre of the spot-fixing scandal that engulfed cricket in 2010 during the England-Pakistan series. He was imprisoned for offences committed and banned from cricket for 10 years, five of which was suspended. The reaction to his appointment as consultant was widespread and uh, you can say the vast majority of it was extremely negative given Salman's past and it prompted Wahab to hold a media conference saying his name had been withdrawn. Subash, it's a very bad own goal this by Pakistan cricket, isn't it? A big error, uh, Brian. I think uh, the board uh, missed out on this one. We even saw a former Pakistan international criticizing board openly after the appointment was announced. There are other individuals who can take the role and PCB to announce this when they were already in problem was bad. Uh, they tried to make things right with withdrawal, but giving NOC to BBL players tried to have damage control. But I think uh, the, the big damage has already been done. John, surely only life bans with life meaning life are sufficient to stop the issue of match and spot fixing rearing its head again and again, isn't it? Yes, I would agree with that. But I suspect there are rather deeper channels behind all of this, and it's not that easy, which is uh, which is rather sad. When you think uh, about the the six years for Marlon Samuels, and he's already retired, it comes again back again. I think to the you know, asking, can we make the punishment uh, or fit the crime? I don't think the authorities are really strong enough. But uh, as I said, there are some um, behind the scenes reasons probably to uh, um, explain all of that. Meanwhile, the Australia-Pakistan Test Series draws ever nearer, with the first test set for Perth Stadium on December the 14th. Ahead of that, as we record this podcast, Pakistan are beginning a four-day warm-up match against the Prime Minister's eleven in Canberra. It's a last red ball game for Australia's players involved in the Big Bash League before that gets underway. And it's being billed as a shootout between Marcus Harris, Matt Renshaw and Cameron Bancroft, with all three in contention to fill the test openers spot about to be vacated 
by David Warner when he retires from the long form of the game after the Sydney test in early January. Sebash, is that how you see it? Those three in a in a shootout for David Warner's spot in the test side? Uh, yes, yeah, certainly. I think Marcos Arias was the front runner in the race, but his domestic numbers has not been that impressive in recent times. And Bancroft and Rainsaw, I think both have been around the team in the past and had their moments. But uh, this time, Australia will be looking for a long-term replacement. Uh, and all three have been opening for their states. I feel the numbers in the PM11 match this week will be the key. Uh, for me, I think Rainsaw with his age by side, I think he'll need to make the most out of it. John, with World Test Championship points on the line in this series, Australia have resisted the temptation to experiment with the squad. Although West Australia fast bowler Lance Morris has been named as a nod to the need for succession planning with the quicker bowlers, does it surprise you that resistance to change or, or even evolution? Or is it fair enough to stick with the players who've had so much success and, and don't really deserve to be left out? No, I, I don't think there's any real resistance to change. Uh, I think it's right to stick with the players who have brought success. I think that Australia know what they're doing. They've shown that they know what they're doing and they will um, they'll achieve their transition as they see fit. Also in Australia, former Australia fast bowler Mitchell Johnson has hit out at the idea of David Warner being given a, a jolly send-off in Sydney after the third test against Pakistan, saying the opener still hasn't, in his words, owned his part of the ball-tampering scandal that engulfed Australian cricket in 2018. And he's also criticised Chief Selector George Bailey, saying he's too close to the players. John, is it all fair comment, this? Or is it, in the words of Warner's manager, James Erskine, a bit sad that a former player is criticising a current one. Well, it is sad, but I think it's also fair. You know, there is an elephant in the room here. And I must admit, when I heard Warner's statement um, setting out um, his retirement plans, I was pretty aghast. You know, how dare a player tell effectively a selection committee uh, what to do? It seemed outrageous and it seemed arrogant. The selectors you know, choose the team, not the players. I think he's out of order and it needed somebody to say something. And Mitchell Johnson's been uh, the person to, to stand up and, and do that. Reading um, behind the scenes, it looks as if there's been some previous between Johnson and Warner. I think um, some statements about concerns about how much his wife has been um, sort of defending him earlier in the year seems to have been a, a sort of the touch paper for this. I, I think Warner, from what I gather from my Australian friends, Warner is not that popular in Australia. He's certainly not very popular in England, but he is, of course, very popular in India. And I think the comments about you know, the ball tampering issue are fair. Uh, and of course, we, you mentioned um, Cameron Bancroft uh, a little earlier, whose career has really been, been not stalled, but um, put on ice for some time by being the, the four guy in that particular incident. The Bash Mitchell Johnson's comments also point to the fact that David Warner has had a, a very modest couple of years at the top of the order, hasn't he? He averaged 30 in 2022, and that included a double hundred. And in 2023, he averages 22 in nine tests. Surely those numbers uh, back up Johnson and they back up uh, what John just said uh, as well a moment ago and suggest 
Warner should have had the tap on the shoulder already. Well, if it was any other player, their time would certainly be up. But uh, Warner, I think, uh, is kind of a player who can do wonders. His number may be poor at the moment, but he can have that impactful innings when in need. And also, his contribution in other formats has been watched closely by the selection panel. Uh, the fact that he's already announced to leave and uh, the World Cup win in India, I think, surely that, that makes this strong case for Warner. But uh, if it was for any other player, I think... Uh, there would have been no space to have this statement. John, is the criticism by Mitchell Johnson of George Bailey fair enough? Or, or can Bailey just point to the World Test Championship mace, the retained ashes and the ICC Cricket World Cup and say, well, there's the proof uh, of my methods uh, and they're there for all to see? Well, he's certainly got a strong case. But Bailey's way of being a selector is, is different to those who preceded him. And he makes a strong case to say that um, that method has, has, has worked. I can't imagine that any of the previous selectors would have, uh, would have allowed the Warner situation to develop in, in the way that it, that it has. England have headed to the Caribbean, intent on starting the process of putting their disastrous Cricket World Cup defence behind them. But the first one-day international of a tour against the West Indies on Sunday, December the 3rd in Antigua didn't go at all to plan. Despite scoring 325, England lost actually with an over to spare, a shy hope, scored his 16th one-day international 100 and Romario Shepherd made 48 from 28 balls to humble the visitors who leaked 113 runs in the last 10 overs after taking the fifth West Indies wicket. So, Bash, first of all, let's praise Shy Hope, the, the West Indies captain. He probably doesn't get the plaudits he deserves as he, he doesn't play for one of the so-called big teams, but his record, you know, stands comparison with any player who's ever played one-day international cricket. If you're listening and, and I'm not sure about this, well, I suggest you just go away and have a look at his numbers. He's reached 5,000 runs in the format in just 114 innings. That's actually the same as Virat Kohli and Viv Richards. And only Barbara Azam and Hashim Amla have reached that mark in fewer innings. He's an incredible player, isn't he? Yeah, I think uh, Hope has been silver lining in West Indies' struggle in recent years. Uh, he's stood form delivered but hasn't had the support he deserves from the other end, uh, not getting to the World Cup was a big blow and his numbers are enough to prove his quality as well. West Indies players, they're getting into T20 franchise leagues that has affected the team in a big way. Hard to believe that they're 10th in the ranking behind Afghanistan and Bangladesh. Uh, I think uh, West Indies will need to gear up now and better their ODI ranking if they are to fight for the big prize in South Africa in four years and I think for hope uh, that that will be around the line of his career and uh, would want to end it on a high. Well, for the West Indies then, hope springs eternal, if you'll forgive the expression. But for England, John, so much for a bright new start. Sam Curran conceded 98 in that first one day international, a record for an England bowler in the format. And there was another failure for captain Joss Butler to follow on from his uh, dismal ICC Cricket World Cup. Can you see things improving? And is it is it just a case of patience being required here? Yes, I think it is a case of patience being required. It is difficult to understand what's happened with Sam Curran. The golden boy of you know, IPL auction last year, it looks a bit as if his um, his performances have been derailed by that sort of a hype. He was left out of the uh, latter games in the in the World Cup. Um, I think he needs probably to have a good look at himself and uh, um, what he's going to do with the rest of his career. I wouldn't worry about Butler. He's got 
some technical problems, but I think he's got so much class that um, he'll come through that. Well, the tour continues in the Caribbean and we'll stay across all the action for you here at The Wicket. So Uganda have confirmed their place alongside Namibia at next year's Men's T20 World Cup in the Caribbean and the USA by virtue of success in the Men's T20 World Cup Africa qualifier. And they've gone through at the expense of Zimbabwe, who miss out on a second global event in succession. Sebastian, just talk to us about what an incredible achievement this is by Uganda, who will be going to the USA and the, the Caribbean, along with Namibia from this qualifier, qualifying uh, for their first ever major global event at senior level, Uganda. It's a, it's a great story, isn't it? Certainly it is, and the best thing is they're going at the expense of Zimbabwe, who will be the only test team to miss out. Uh, they're going to be ones to watch, uh, the first, uh, the only debutant in this edition. And Zimbabwe, I think, uh, captained by Sikandar Raza, will need some time to digest this, especially after the circumstances yeah. that saw them miss out uh, a previous World Cup as well. Uganda, they took one game at a time this uh, in the qualifiers. They didn't let their nerves get better of them. Their celebration after the qualifiers, qualification was enough to explain the joy. There were a few fans around as well. And... Uh, New associate team coming into World Scene will help the game reach new places. And Uganda cricket, I think, uh, I've said it previously as well, they've been doing really good in grassroots as well. The women's cricket is developing as well. We had them touring Nepal last year. And uh, the World Cup will only help motivate the board to get uh, newer boys. And uh, the integration of experts in the team has certainly helped. But uh, I think that that will only help in the growth of cricket in that reason. Well, John, after the, the failure to make the Men's ICC Cricket World Cup and now this disappointment, do you foresee major changes in Zimbabwe cricket now? I think um, uh, Dave Houghton, the coach, has gone. I think the director of cricket uh, has also gone. Looks to be rather knee-jerk reaction to that failure. Looking at the, the performances, I would have thought some some of the finger ought to be pointed at the captain who made some rather quite bizarre bowling changes in, in several of the games. I know he was a leading run scorer, but I think on the field uh, there were decisions that were made that uh, contributed uh, as much to um, Zimbabwe's failure as um, as those of uh, the management. Well, all 20 teams are now confirmed for the uh, Men's T20 World Cup next year with uh, the co-hosts, the USA and the West Indies. They're joined by Australia, England, India, Pakistan, the Netherlands, Sri Lanka, South Africa and New Zealand. That's the top eight from the last event in Australia last year. Two other sides, Afghanistan and Bangladesh, are there by virtue of their places in the ICC rankings, while the other eight sides have all secured spots via qualification, Ireland, Scotland, Papua New Guinea, Canada, Nepal and Oman, plus Namibia and Uganda. So uh, it's all to look forward to there from uh, that perspective, that tournament taking place next year. But for Zimbabwe, they're back on the horse very quickly indeed with a white ball series against Ireland. And we'll stay across that for you here at the wicket. Two more quick items uh, before we finish. First of all, the Nepal T20 domestic tournament has wrapped up since our last uh, podcast, and there was no fairy tale for Sandeep Lamichane as his uh, Bagmati province was beaten in the semi-final. The event was won by uh, Madesh province, and Subash, 
Was the tournament played in Pokhara a success, would you say? Yeah, a successful tournament. And with a message that there are talents in Nepal that can go overlooked. Uh, Madhesh beat Army in the final. Uh, Army had 10 players who had represented the national team and the province team in minimal resources, giving result is wake-up call for the big teams as well. Also, with uh, national teams' uh, big guns faltering, Monty Desai will have an eye on new talents going forward. So that's the Nepal T20 tournament done and dusted. But uh, another event is on the horizon. That's the Under-19 Asia Cup. And this gets underway in Dubai on December the 8th. It's a massive event in itself for the players involved, as well as an ideal lead-in for six of the eight sides towards next year's ICC Under-19 Cricket World Cup in South Africa. Those six sides off to South Africa are India, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, Nepal, Afghanistan and Pakistan. While the other two sides on show in Dubai are the hosts, the UAE and Japan, who were the surprise packets in the qualifiers earlier this year. We'll keep across this tournament for you and report back in a future podcast. Now it's time to look ahead to the next week and what that has in store. Uh, as we always do, gentlemen, what are your plans for this coming week cricket-wise Sebash, first of all, what are you up to? Uh, it's uh, game again against India and Pakistan. Uh, seems like uh, that's third time in this year we're playing them, this time in the under-19s. So we're trying to end this year on a high note. I think under-19 boys, uh, they are capable of doing something better than the seniors couldn't do. And John, what are you up to? Uh, keeping warm, I'm guessing, and, and probably watching uh, England against uh, the West Indies. Yes, that's absolutely uh, correct. But also, I think the, as I mentioned earlier, the women's cricket in in India coming up um, should be quite exhilarating. Take some mind off England's performances, anyway, or England's men's performances, should I say? Yes, absolutely. Well, uh, thanks very much for joining us, Sebash and John. And thanks to you for listening here at The Wicket. We'll be back soon with more cricket chat from the Gulf region, Asia and worldwide. Please don't forget to like, subscribe and comment on what you've heard wherever you get your podcasts. And we'd love to hear your feedback. Let us know, too, if there's anything you'd like us to feature in future episodes. For now, though, this is Brian Murgatroyd, along with John Pike and also Sebastian Hummergain, saying thanks so much for listening. And we look forward to your company next time. <laughs>